All right, we're going to Acts uh, 23 and 24, and um, what we're going to talk about this evening is about how to live with a good or clear conscience. And the reason why that uh, is really the thread of these two chapters is uh, twice in these chapters, the Apostle Paul uses that as uh, his explanation and observing how he's living his life and what he defends himself about and uses that picture, I think, is uh, a tremendous teaching for us as we try to live our lives in the same way before God. You have in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1 that the Apostle Paul will say there, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And then in chapter 24, before a different audience that we'll look at, he says it again. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So uh, the repetition tells us that is our guardrails of how to look at these uh, two chapters as they sit here uh, with the Apostle Paul. And it's Paul giving us really a window into how he looked at his life before God. Now let's set up a little bit of, of what's happened up to this point. Uh, we saw in Acts 21 and 22 that you have Paul in Jerusalem and Jews from Asia have arrived in Jerusalem with the intent to persecute Paul. They've stirred up the crowd to such a degree that you remember that they have uh, dragged him out of the temple courts and they are beating him to death. As they are beating him to death, a Roman commander and his soldiers intervene uh, because that's what they were there for, was to keep out chaos and that kind of thing from happening. Uh, and so they quickly go in there and try to determine uh, exactly what's going on. There's so much yelling and rioting that you remember that the commander and his soldiers have to carry Paul out of that scene and into the barracks of the fortress of Antonia that was stationed there next door. As Paul is there, you remember he asked the Roman commander for the ability to address this crowd that is trying to kill him, to be able to give a defense and an explanation for the life change that he has experienced. But after giving his explanation about his life, that didn't settle down the crowd at all, but that stirred them up all the more. And so uh, the Roman commander has to pull Paul back in again, and they are about to scourge him when, when Paul says, now, uh, is it lawful to scourge Roman citizens who haven't been tried? And the answer to that is, no, it's not. Uh, and immediately the Roman commander stops there at the end of of chapter 22 and trying to determine then, well, why are the Jews so upset at you? In their mind, you must have been doing something wrong to have this city in an uproar. And that's why the Romans were going to beat him. And so Paul goes, no, no, you can't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. And so this now affords Paul an opportunity in chapter 23 to be able to explain himself again. What the Roman commander does is he tells the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem to gather together essentially for a trial. And with the Romans there trying to hear what are the charges against this man and then allow Paul a defense so that the Romans can sort out why Jerusalem is in an uproar, what Paul has done, and how they're supposed to be able to sort all this out. 
Now, if you know the book of Acts, you'll realize nobody can sort all this out. It goes all the way to the end of the book, and there's no sorting out whatsoever. This is a constant tension between uh, Paul as a Roman citizen, the Jews wanting to kill him, and everybody trying to figure out why, what are, why are they so upset. And so Paul is going to give an explanation for that now in Acts chapter 23. Here he is before in this trial before uh, the council and the elders of the Jews, as well as the, the Roman citizen, Roman soldiers, as well as the Roman commander uh, is there at, at this point. And this is where this comes in. Chapter 23, verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Annas and Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest for it is written you shall not speak evil of a ru- of the, a ruler of your people. This is a really interesting uh, opening scene as, as it unfolds. Here, Paul barely has been able to start his explanation. He simply says, "I have lived my life in good conscience uh, up to this day." And I want you to think about that phrase, that line, that sentence. Not only here, but throughout the lesson tonight, I'm thinking about Paul's ability to say. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this moment. Uh, That is a very powerful thing to say. And we know that Paul does not mean that he is sinless. He very quick to say, I am the chief of sinners, as he says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. He is not proclaiming a sinlessness, but rather a devotion of his life to be pleasing to God. He's attempted to live it with all integrity and his whole desire has been to do what God wants. And so even though he has not been perfect in that, that has been his life mission. That has been his whole goal from very beginning to even up to this point. And so that's what he proclaims as as his effort. And as he does that, the high priest in verse 2 orders someone to go up to Paul and just punch him in the face. Now imagine that. Just smack him right in the face. And I want you to listen to Paul's answer because what Paul says is accurate. You will notice that Paul doesn't retaliate. He doesn't say, all right, it's on. You know, when he goes after him, he he says, God is going to strike you. Notice I'm putting this back on you. What you've done is worthy of condemnation. And he explains that here I am. On trial, and you are sitting there as if this is going to be a real trial before yourselves and before God to be judged according to the law. And yet, the end of verse three, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck, which it was against the law. So here you are acting like we're going to do things according to the law, and then you have me punched in the mouth. And so he challenges him on that and says. Uh, What you have done is a hypocritical action, and that is why he's called a whitewashed wall. Uh, You know, you imagine rather than uh, fixing a wall, you you can put a veneer over it and make it look real pretty, but behind it is it's all decayed and falling down and all of that. 
And that's what he's saying is you are playing a part, a hypocritical part. But inside, you're clearly a mess that you would do something like that. That's clearly an evil action to, to immediately have it or an order to hit Paul in the mouth. Now, something interesting happens in this. The response in verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And I want you to think about Paul's answer here. Because you'll notice in verse 5, the apostle Paul does not say, yeah, that's right. (laughs) You know what? He did something that was evil, egregious, wicked, sinful, and a breaking of God's law. So, yeah, that's right. He doesn't say that. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul says there in verse 5, I did not know that that man was the high priest. And I am going to constrain myself to the law that said, you are not to revile a leader of your people. And I am amazed by this because I want you to put yourself in these shoes. Was the high priest wrong? Absolutely. Was the high priest breaking the law? Absolutely. Was he even breaking God's law? Absolutely. Was he a whitewashed wall? Yep, he absolutely was. And was the high priest carrying out a great injustice at this moment? He absolutely was. And yet, absolutely none of that nullified what God said about how you were supposed to treat your leader. I think that is fascinating. And the Apostle Paul does not go, well, you know what? Exodus 22 does not apply because you are a terrible person. You are a wicked, evil, horrible person. (laughs) No, he says, I would have never said that if I had known who he was. Those words wouldn't have come out of my mouth. Wouldn't have said it. And I think that is a, a powerful picture to understand the Respect and honor that God expects his people to have for those who are in authority. And there's a reason why God expects that of us. You have, like in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, here's one of the reasons why we're not supposed to speak against authorities and leaders. is because they exist because God established them. They're there because God said so. And the very next line that the Apostle Paul says after that, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And I see you see Paul living what he is proclaiming right here is that he understands we are not supposed to speak against those who are in charge. We're not supposed to have the, those kinds of words come out of our mouths. I think that interesting, another way to read verse 2 of Romans 13 from the Christian Standard Bible says, and the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. That's another way to understand what the Greek setup. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. I have been probably amazed at what Christians have amazingly said about rulers and leaders and governors and presidents and all of that. Let's see, when, what would be good math? Eight, four, and two. Fourteen, last 14 years. It is probably pretty amazing to me to think how often Christians will cave into this. And often the, the 
justification is, well, they're wrong. So is the high priest. Well, they're doing something against the law. So is the high priest. Well, they're breaking God's law. So is the high priest. Well, they're not representing what God wants. So is this guy. He's a whitewashed wall. Yeah, he is. And yet the Apostle Paul says, God says not to revile them. And if I had known that that was a leader of my people, I would have never said that. And we as the people of God cannot, cannot, cannot engage in that kind of speaking about those that God has put into authority. And it may be true that we don't like them. We don't like their stand. We think they're evil. We think they're wrong. Okay. But that doesn't allow us to speak against them in a reviling manner. And that's what the Apostle Paul acknowledges here. I think it is so important that we have that mentality put before us that living in good conscience means that we are going to not engage in that kind of behavior. Having wicked rulers does not give us the freedom to speak evil about them. And I think we kind of just have that natural default. They're evil, so I can say bad things about them. No, you can't. You know, I would expect the Apostle Paul to have all kinds of choice words about Emperor Nero, (laughs) choice words about these uh, Jewish high priests and these leaders, and he doesn't engage in it at all. He doesn't do it. And so living in good conscience before God means that we're not going to do that. We are going to be different. And that is, I think, so important, especially in our culture right now that has been in just a spin-up as each side gets their guy in. And then they get a turn and half the country all wants to spew horrible things about him. And then the other side gets their turn. And then half the country wants to spew horrible things about him. That's not us. That's not us. We don't talk like that. We understand that God has instituted these authorities and that we will speak righteously and we will speak truthfully and not engage in reviling. That is an amazing picture that I see the Apostle Paul pointing out here as he quotes from Exodus 22 and it follows into Romans chapter 13 as well, that those are not the kinds of words that would come out of our mouths. We do not revile leaders because God has put them there and we are the ones then who are going to speak as God would want us to speak. This leads into a second picture about what it looks like to live with a clear conscience before God. You will notice in verse 6, after he clears that up and expresses that he did not know that this was a ruler of the people or else he would not have spoken those words. In verse 6 of Acts 23, you'll notice it says, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee. A son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I love what the Apostle Paul does here is because the reason he is on trial is because of his hope in the resurrection. Because Jesus, excuse me, because Paul is going around proclaiming Jesus has risen from the dead. And that's the whole problem that the Jewish people have. 
He's not the Messiah. He's not the one. And Paul is saying, my hope in the resurrection believes that he is the one who rose from the dead. Remember, his first defense is he came to me and told me to go and proclaim the message and to be a witness to the things that I've seen, to even go to the Gentiles and proclaim that message of salvation. And he says, essentially, the reason why we're all here today is because I believe in the resurrection. And that is absolutely true. That was what this was ultimately all about. This causes quite a stir up as well as you have then this big dissension in verse seven that arises in verse nine. It's described as a great clamor uh, arising. And it says in verse 10, when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Just again, visualize the scene. What is this scene looking like between with these Jewish leaders, these Jewish elders, these spiritual leaders, to the point that it says that this Roman tribune, when they see what's going on, they are afraid that Paul will be torn apart. What does it look like in that scene right now? What are those people doing to him? Now, they think he's going to be torn to shreds if they don't get him out of there. And did you notice the text said they had to pull him out by force? They're not letting Paul go. They're not letting Paul walk out of there. And the Romans are physically having to get Paul and move him out. This is how serious it is. Can you imagine how how fearful you would be? And look at verse 11. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I am struck by this. Uh, certainly one aspect that is striking to me is, is the courage that the Lord gives Paul here. You can imagine what a frightening scene that was. He looks like he's about to lose his life repeatedly. They were beating him a few days earlier. They are now about to do that again and tear him limb from limb and, and tear him to pieces. And notice that God comes to Paul and says, it's going to be fine. Take courage because you're going to say this same message in Rome. Now, here's what here's me. I would raise my hand and, and, and say at this moment, well, when I was in Corinth back in Acts chapter 17, couldn't I have just gone to Rome from there and skipped this part? <laughs> if the whole goal is to get me to Rome and to, to proclaim and witness to what I've seen and proclaim this resurrection, Well, can't we bypass the Jerusalem part where we know they're not going to listen? If I were the Apostle Paul and say, you told me they weren't going to listen, even though I tried to make them listen. You said they weren't going to listen and they aren't listening. And remember what all the prophets told him along the way? You were going to be bound in Jerusalem. You were going to be taken away. The Holy Spirit told Paul that. The prophets were telling Paul that. And so here's my thinking is, Why not just bypass all of this? Let's just go straight to Rome. Let's just do that. And I think there is something that God is always trying to show us. You see it through the people of God. Even the Apostle Paul is experiencing it here. Is that God always accomplishes his plans and purposes so often through our hardships and pains and struggles and trials and suffering. It's the way God works. Uh, I I would want that God would only work through all the good times, you know. (laughs) 
But God uses these things to accomplish his will. And living in good conscience before God then ultimately means a willingness to go the hard path that God puts us on. And you don't have the Apostle Paul saying, you know, this is how the reaction is going to go. You know, I think I'm going to resign from my apostleship. I'm going to go ahead and retire and find some some calm place in the Greek Isles that I can just kind of spend out my days. He goes, if the messages go into Rome, okay. And when the Holy Spirit says you're going to be bound in Jerusalem and yet you must go, he goes, okay. There must be this willingness on our part to say, I'm willing to take the hard path. I'm willing to go where God wants me to go. And even if it is just bone crushing trials and severe hardship, living with a good conscience before God means I accept that. And as hard as it may be, I will accept that. Here's how Moses described it. He said in Deuteronomy 8, In verse two, remember that the Lord, your God led you on the entire journey, these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. If I'm Israel, I'd say, let's just skip the desert. Let's just. You know, take the fast way to the promised land, hugging the Mediterranean Sea. That's the shortcut. Why do we have to go out here to Sinai and in the wilderness and then the 40 years? Can't we just go get to the point? And God says, no, you have to go into the wilderness so that I can humble you and test you and see what is in your heart to see if you will obey, to see if you will stay with me. And I want you to see even the Apostle Paul has this. The Apostle Paul does not get to go from Corinth to Rome. He's going to go first to Jerusalem, even though it's going to go really badly in Jerusalem. It is going badly in Jerusalem. But that's the path to go. And we must be willing to walk that path. We must be ready to be used as God's instruments in this work. And even though in our lives it can be that we're going a very hard way and God has given us great trials and great difficulties, it's God's will and it's God's plan. And for us to go that path and living in good conscience before God means that even in the midst of our greatest pains and even in the greatest trials, we are willing to give ourselves before God and say, I will be an instrument in your hands. You go ahead and get me through this and you go ahead and test my heart and I will show you that I am with you. The rest of Acts 23 quite simply shows how bad it's going to be. Verses 12 and 13 reveal that there are more than 40 Jews who have made a conspiracy, and their conspiracy is this. They will not eat or drink until they have killed the Apostle Paul, and they have a great way for that plan to happen. They are going to ask the Romans to bring Paul back out for another day of trial, Send him out tomorrow, and as soon as they bring him out of those Roman barracks, they're just going to kill him right there. And so the plan is in place. These men have made an oath and a vow before God that they are going to kill him and they will not eat or drink until, until they are able to do so. You want to talk about the hand of God. Funny enough, here, here's your irony. <laughs> here's the hand of God. Paul's nephew somehow hears about this conspiracy plan. 
and is able to go visit Paul and tell Paul what's about to happen. And Paul tells his nephew to go speak to the centurion in verse 17 and tell him everything that you know about this conspiracy. And so when that message is given, uh, verse 20, uh, he gives that message. The Jews have agreed to ask to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves to an oath to neither eat or drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. Jerusalem is a scary place for Paul. And yet God said, you're going to go to Rome. And so God is moving the pieces around to make that be able to happen. And so you have that at the end of chapter 23, you have the uh, the commander be, uh, getting wind of this, being told this by the centurion. And we are told that at the end of chapter 23, what they are going to do is move Paul to Caesarea and get him out of Jerusalem. Best thing for Paul at that moment, get him away from Jerusalem, get him into more Roman controlled hands, move him over to Caesarea. And so he's basically held there for his own safety. And that sets up for us a really interesting scene in chapter 24. Chapter 24 opens again. The Romans are still trying to figure out what has Paul done that they're so riled up about? Why are people saying they're not going to eat or drink until they kill Paul? Why is it when this guy comes into Jerusalem that everybody is so upset? And so at that time, we now have a historical figure on the scene that we can cross-reference with history. His, the man's name is Antonius Felix. And Antonius Felix was the governor of Judea from 52 to 59 AD. And here we are, this man Felix, now in, in Acts chapter 24, he wants to know what's, go, what's with this man. And so he is now going to hold a Roman trial in regards to the apostle Paul. And so the Jewish leaders are told to come from Jerusalem to Caesarea and Antonius Felix is going to preside over the trial and allow Paul to have a defense. So listen to the charges that the Jewish leaders bring. In verse 5, they say of Acts 24, We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So I want you to notice what they, what they say about him. This guy is such a problem. He is a problem for the Roman Empire. And notice how they color that because the Romans do not want trouble, riots, or any of that kind of stuff. They don't want that chaos. And so notice the picture of him. He goes throughout the whole world stirring up riots. Now think about this. Is that what Paul's doing? You know, he just walks into a town and says, let's riot. That's not what he's doing. But that's how they're trying to portray him. This guy, when he comes into a town, he causes problems. He is a plague. He stirs up the crowds. He causes riots. He is a ringleader. And not only that, he has tried to profane our, our, our temple. And so you are going to see, verse 8, that by examining him for yourself, that all of these things that we are accusing him are true. So now it's Paul's turn. And so Paul stands up. And notice in verse 11, he says, you can verify 
that it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the cities. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. I, I think this is such an interesting response. Paul's first response is, I haven't been here long enough to cause a problem. <laughs> That's his first answer in verse 11. I've been here about 12 days. It's not like I've been here for months, you know, trying to start up conspiracies and riots and coups and all of that. I just got here. And, and when I came, was I trying to stir up anybody? Verse 12, he says, no one found me disputing. No one saw me stirring up the crowds. And he says in verse 12, I wasn't stirring them up in the temple. I wasn't stirring them up in the synagogue. And I wasn't stirring them up in the city. That's not what I was doing. Here's what he was doing. Verse, verse 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God that these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Please let those words just resonate of what Paul can say. Paul is able to stand up in a Roman tribunal before Antonius Felix, the governor of Judea, the Roman authority. The next guy up after him is Caesar himself. This is an important figure. And he is able to stand before this governor and say, I have lived my life in clear conscience and I have taken great pains to live with a clear conscience, not only before God, but before people. Do you hear what his response is? His response is, I've never lived my life going around trying to cause problems. That's not what I do. I don't go into cities and trying to stir things up. I'm not causing conspiracies and riots. I'm not doing that kind of thing at all. And I want you to see that that's what he's proclaiming is that's not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is not trying to cause the toppling of cities. That's not what he's doing. Well, instead, what he does is simply tell them about the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it is amazing that yet again, the Apostle Paul here is not decrying the Jewish leaders. You know, that would be probably my defense. These guys are a bunch of liars and they are wicked and they are awful and I can't stand. He, does, he, doesn't, he just says, you know what? You just look at my life. And I've never done anything that has not been out of a good conscience before God and others. I've never done anything. That you would be able to charge me with such a disturbance or a riot or any of these kinds of charges. I've never done that, is his explanation before this, this tribunal. I think it's just amazing. He doesn't call these Romans evil or some kind of kangaroo court or anything like that. I want you to notice what he says in verse 15. When he goes around places, what is he talking about? The hope of the resurrection. That's what he's talking about. 
The reason everybody's all in a stir, he says, is not because I'm trying to cause a stir. I'm just talking about the hope of the resurrection, which they themselves also believe. They themselves also believe in it. The reason why, again, I think this is important is because you are seeing in the life of Paul, it mirroring the very thing that he was teaching Christians to do. For example, remember what Paul instructed us to pray. In 1 Timothy 2, listen to what he says. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, by the way, we could just put a period right there and go back to point one, right? It is not that what we do is say slanderous words about all people and kings and those in high positions and authority and revile them because they're weak. He says that's not what we do. We pray for them. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. By the way, would we go ahead and box the word thanksgiving? Underline, highlight. I urge people to have thanksgiving for all people, kings, and all who are in high positions. I'll let that sit there. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you hear this, what the Apostle Paul is saying? That's how I lived my life. I have lived my life in good conscience before God and all people. I think that's another way of saying a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You cannot put those charges on me. Nothing in my life reveals that. All that I have done is ultimately to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the controlled life that he lives. And I want you to notice what happens with this. Notice that there is still yet no answer about all this. Verse 22 tells us that Felix is just going to kind of make a decision later. He kind of puts this whole trial off. He's not going to give a decree yet. And so he says in verse 22 of chapter 24, when the commander of the tribune comes, I'll, I'll decide your case. But listen to what happens. It says there in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. All right, you've got one of the most powerful people that you can talk to in the Roman Empire who's listening to you, who's called you in. They want to have discussions with you. What are you going to talk to him about? You're going to talk politics? He says, here's what I talked to him about. Faith in Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. That's what he talked about. You need some vision that every day talking to Felix. More about righteousness. You need to live right before God. More about self-control. More about there's a judgment coming. You need to have faith in Jesus. Reasoning those things with him. 
That is what he does. He's not speaking evil here. He doesn't say, boy, you are a terrible ruler. How dare you not show that I'm innocent and let me go? He just says, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about faith in him. Let's talk about self-control. Let's talk about righteousness. Let's talk about these things and reason together in those things. And here's what I want us to think about in all of this. Do we think that's something that we can do? Just talk to people about faith in Jesus, reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Can we talk to people about that? Can that be our discussion point? Can that be the thing that we are the most concerned about? That's what Paul does. And I think it is hugely important for us to see that that is the picture given to us about what it looks like to live before God with a good conscience and to live before all people with a good conscience. We do not speak evil of others. We are ready for God to bring us through any difficulty, any hardship, whatever it is. And what we do is we live our lives in a good conscience before God and all people speaking like the apostle Paul spoke and speaking like Jesus spoke. I don't have time, but please think about how Jesus spoke to Pilate in that trial. You calling him names? Jesus reviling him? Simple, straightforward discussion about who Jesus is is all they're talking about. I think there's such an important message for us to understand is that we must live a life that is defensible to the world and we must live it in a way that we are not showing that we are troublemakers, but rather we are people who are speaking about faith, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And what will you say to people this week about who you are and what matters most to you? When you talk to your friends and your neighbors, when you post on social media, when you talk to people at work, what are you going to talk about? The Apostle Paul talked about faith, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Friends, I want all of us to be able to say these words In the final day. And I want us to be able to say these words. No matter who may be ever approach us. I have just done all that I can. To live my life. With a good conscience. Before God. And before all people. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. Your servant Paul is an amazing picture of how to handle oppression and hardship and difficulty and falsehoods and worthless trials and lies. So many things were thrown at him. And Lord, what an amazing example that you have left for us to see in his life. Lord, I pray that we would have that same kind of integrity. And Lord, when the temptation arises within us to revile leaders, to revile those who are in positions of authority, that we remember that you have put those in authority for a reason and that we are to pray for those who are our leaders 
and to offer thanks for them. Lord, I pray that we would have those hearts. Lord, give us the hearts and transform our hearts so that we would live our lives before you and before all people so that people would see that we are followers of your son and that we are about having faith in your son who tried to live in righteousness with self-control and with fear and reverence because of the coming judgment. Lord, forgive us for any time we have been slanderous in our words toward your leaders toward those who you have put in authority and toward those who you have put over us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of gratefulness. Lord, we are thankful for the country that we live in. Thank you for our freedoms. Thank you for the peace that we enjoy. Thank you for giving us this time where we are able to worship you without any concern or worry. Thank you for allowing us to have a a place and culture where we can speak about faith, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And there is nothing that can be done against us for it. Lord, I pray that we would always have that freedom. And Lord, I pray that you would give us more opportunities to use our freedom to speak about you and to speak about the great hope that lies ahead because of what we have in your son. Lord, help us to live a life that is clear before you and clear before all people. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight, turn away from sin, to follow him with all of your heart. We would love to help you in any way possible. If you need help, if you have any concerns, if there's any way we can pray for you or encourage you, you can let us know afterward, uh, or you can come forward now while we stand and while we sing.